This is uh, for a couple of reasons. First Corinthians 13 is, I think, one of the most familiar passages in our culture, in the Bible. And I would just say, if you grew up in the church or you're a Christian now, um, there is always a danger that the most familiar things are the ones that you don't really look at, you don't really see what they're saying. And First Corinthians 13, even beyond that, is very easy to misunderstand. It, it, I don't think this is a bad practice, but I always point this out. When it's read at weddings, we're, we're setting ourselves up to, to mishear it, or at least not hear it fully. It has nothing to do directly with romance in this passage. Of course it applies to marriage, just like it applies to how you treat your co-workers and how you treat your children and how you treat your enemies and how you relate to God and how you relate to everybody in the world. But there's nothing in the context about marriage or about romance here. And maybe more so because, and, and I love that Dan did this, last week, chapter 12, was all about spiritual gifts, that the Spirit has poured out many different gifts on the people of God. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 14, which we will spend two two weeks on starting next week. And that's the weird stuff. Some of you are going to be like, oh man, it's going to get weird. Speaking in tongues, prophecy. Others, you're like speaking in tongues and prophecy. Finally, time to get weird. However you feel about that, we're going to spend two weeks on 1 Corinthians 14. And I want you to notice that it starts just as the chapter before it in chapter 12 when spiritual gifts ends. Pursue love, chapter 14, verse 1, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why? Why prophecy in particular? But I want you to notice that chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts, and it ends with, I will show you a still more excellent way, love. Then there's this seemingly um, kind of detour towards love, and then chapter 14 comes back to spiritual gifts. So I just want you to notice that the context for this um, description of love is the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. We're in a series right now where we're asking the question, why do we gather together week in and week out on Sundays as a church and small groups? Why not just stay home and listen to this on a podcast later on? You could listen Listen to every single song the worship team led us in on Spotify. Why, why come together? And one of the most basic reasons, and it's so simple, but it's so profound, is we gather together to be loved and we gather together to love. And you can't do that at home. You can't do that on, on the internet. You have to be with flesh and blood people. But here specifically, it is connected to this, um, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to use your spiritual gifts? What does it look like to be spiritual? And the last thing I'll say before I jump in is that the most likely thing we, we miss about 1 Corinthians 13, and it's what I think when it's read at weddings, which is absolutely fine. If you read it at a wedding that I officiate, I promise I'm not going to rebuke you or, or be like, ah, it's not a good passage here. But in context, 1 Corinthians 13 is a rebuke and it's a challenge. And, it, and it's holding up before them what they are failing to be. Paul is not wanting them at the end of chapter 13 to be like, oh, that's so beautiful. He wants them to blush. He wants them to, to be ashamed of how far they fall short of this. Now, that is not my main goal. I was tempted because we're going to install elders and deacons, not today. But I was thinking, man, like we should maybe do the confession of sin after the sermon this week. Um, because this one really holds up before us how we fall short of it. That's not, again, the main goal that we feel bad about ourselves. But, but feeling good about ourselves is definitely not the main reason Paul writes this. And so let's start with, uh, with a mystery or a puzzle. I like mysteries. I like puzzles. There's a great book that came out a couple of years ago by Tom Holland, who is British, but not the actor who plays Spider-Man. There's another Tom Holland who's British. And he wrote a great book called Dominion. And the subtitle is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And the epigram of the book, on, on the first page you open to, at the table of contents and, and all the editorials up, the first thing you see is two quotes. 
And, and it's the, the key to the book and, and what he wants to set before us as if you want to know how we have gotten to where we are in Western culture, you have to wrestle with this mystery. And the first quote is from over 1,500 years ago from St. Augustine. And it's a very famous quote from St. Augustine, very controversial quote, very powerful quote, where Augustine summarizes the Christian faith with this, love and then do whatever you want. Love and then do whatever you want which resonates with us in our culture. And the last quote is from about 60 or 70 years ago from my parents' generation, maybe, maybe a little less than that. And it's from Paul and Ringo and John and George, the Beatles, and it's all you need is love. And he says, here's, here, here's the, the mystery. On the surface, the language is the same, the vocabulary, love. The, the, the gist of it seems to be similar, that love is in some sense the center of everything else, that it is the essence of everything else. And in some sense, if you have that, you have everything you need. And yet, if you know anything about Augustine, if you know anything about the Beatles in the 60s, they mean very different things by these statements. And so how do we get from Augustine saying in the 4th century, in the 5th century, um, love and then just do whatever you want for the rest of your life. And the Beatles saying all you need is love. And yet we mean th- those two statements mean very, very different things. And so one of my f- favorite philosophers and one that I quote often, I think one of the great philosophers of Western history, Anigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, reminds us that you keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. And we use the word love in lots of different ways. I love chocolate. I love the Yankees. I love this. I love that. I, I'm really bad at that. I do that all the time. And we often mean very different things than what Jesus means by it or what the Apostle Paul says here. And so what I want us to do is just for a few minutes think through what exactly does this word mean and, uh, and again, that's the, the heart of First Corinthians 13. It's a short passage. I would encourage you to consider. Some of you will know this. I'm actually not a, a, a huge um, proponent of memorizing scripture. Um, I would encourage you more to just devour scripture and think about it and read it. Memorizing it doesn't in and of itself necessarily have any value. And it can actually take up time and energy that you could put elsewhere to really understanding scripture. But, but one thing that memorizing scripture certainly does is it forces you to pay attention to the specific details. So you have to remember like love is, is what, and it's not what, and you have to remember the order. In 1 Corinthians 13, if you are interested in memorizing scripture at all, I think this is a great passage to try to memorize. And to regularly hold before your eyes and think, is this what I understand by the word love? Is this what I'm aspiring to? Is this how I see how God relates to me and has related and will relate to me? And so I'm just going to make three short points during the sermon, and then we'll call up some, some, um, the next elder and the next deacons. The first point will be the priority of love. The second point will be the shape of love. And the third point will be the cost of love. That love always has cost. The first point, the priority of love, we still deeply resonate with as a culture. The shape of love is where I think we are most different from the Christian faith overall and how we understand the shape of love. And the cost of love is where our instincts are mostly like, no, 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 love shouldn't cost anything. Love should, love should be the good life. Love should not take you into suffering. It should take you away from loneliness and away from suffering and away from difficulty. Um, but, but that's not in this part of the story what it usually does. And so in terms of the priority of love, just look at the first couple of verses. And I'll kind of do a quick survey of, of how this theme plays out in many places in Scripture. Hear these, these claims again. 
If I speak in the tongues of men, and that's probably what I'm doing right now, you can understand what I'm saying. There's some eloquence there. It's like I prepared to say some of the things I'm going to do. If you can get up in front of people and speak well, and people are like, whoa, that was, that, was, that was cool, and that was insightful, there were some aha moments there. Or if you can speak in the tongues of angels, which I think is what Paul means by speaking in tongues in the next chapter, which we'll talk about the next two weeks, among other things, and yet you do not have love, you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That is, it's pointless. You're, you're missing the point. You're wasting your time. If I have prophetic powers, and notice none of these things Paul thinks are bad. He's going to say at the beginning of the next chapter, aspire to, to, to all the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, that is, if I am more right about reality than anybody else in the world is currently, If my ideology lines up with what is true more than anybody else around me and anybody else in the world, and I understand all the mysteries of human existence, and I have all knowledge about what's going on in the universe, and if I even have so much faith that, like Jesus says, I can call to a mountain and it is moved, it removes itself, but I have not love, I am nothing. And then finally, if I give away all that I have, and then some of you will notice that there is a, um, what do you call it, a footnote here in many of our Bibles, in deliver up my body to be burned. That, I think, is probably not what Paul originally said that was added by a scribe later on. At this point in time, Christians are not being martyred and not being burned. And it's just a very strange statement you can see in your footnote. The idea seems to be that if you engage in great sacrificial acts on behalf of the common good, so that you can boast. And boasting here is not pejorative, but just have a sense that, like, I have done the right thing. I'm on the right side of history, but you have not love. You have gained nothing. All of these things are good. It is great to be self-sacrificial for the common good. It is great to speak in tongues and that prophecy. It's great to be eloquent. It's great to have faith. It's great, all these things. And yet, without love, we're wasting our time. Without love, everything else is lost. Augustine says in another place, very famously on Christian doctrine in our culture, tends to love this, and that's good, but also tends to twist this in ways that Augustine did not mean. But Augustine says, the next time you're reading your Bible and you're trying to hear what God is saying through scripture, he says, here's the test. Whoever therefore thinks that he understands the divine scriptures or any part of them, but in such a way that his interpretation or her interpretation of their meaning does not practically build them up in the double love of God and of their neighbor does not understand what the scriptures are actually saying. That if you are more loving towards God and if you are more loving towards your neighbor, you're a good reader of the Bible. If you are less loving, you are a bad reader of the Bible, is what Augustine is saying. Many of you will will know a lot of these passages. One thing you could do in um, following up on this in the days and weeks to come is just do a a search on BibleGateway.com of every occurrence of the word love in the New Testament. Jesus says that all of the law and the prophets hang on the love command. When people come up to him and say, Jesus, there are hundreds of commands from God in the Old Testament. Which is the most important? Jesus always says the great command, not two commands, but the great command is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. I'll do it another time, but, but just because I think it's so such a good example of how our culture tends to hear language about love differently. I'll point this out. I have heard so many times in sermons 
I've heard so many times, read so many times in essays and articles and books, and I certainly have heard many Christians, and I don't mean to critique people as being bad here, but just it's, it's such so common, even in the church, that what Jesus is saying there is that before you can love God and before you can love your neighbor, you need to first love yourself. Because you can't love God if you're not already, you know, feel good about yourself and have self-esteem and can't do it when you're empty. But that's not a prescriptive statement. It's not before you love God and before you love your neighbor, first love yourself. It's a descriptive statement. Here's one thing I know about every single one of us, regardless of our differences, is that you love yourself with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You put enormous energy into that project. You spend endless hours strategizing about how you can care for yourself, about how you can fulfill your desires, about how you can get what you want. Every single one of us is all in on loving ourselves. We are very enthusiastic about that project. And that in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. That's not the the point. The point is that that's the standard for how we relate to our neighbors. And that's the standard for how we relate to God. And none of us is, enthousi- is nearly as enthusiastic about those two projects as we are about the one for ourselves. Throughout the, the letters and the documents of the New Testament, there is this idea that love is at the heart of everything else. In our relationship with God, in our relationship with one another, that there is a priority to love. Last week, one of the points I made, and it seems like it resonated with some of you, so I'll just bring it up here again, is that in our culture, we tend to to see these kind of two extreme kind of difficulties in our lives pop up over and over and over again. On the one hand, burnout, that we often feel exhausted. We often feel like we're at the end of our rope. We often feel like I'm just, I'm giving and I'm giving and I'm doing and I'm doing, and then I run into a dead end and I'm just exhausted. And on the other hand, seemingly very different, but I think connected, is boredom. Is I'm receiving, and I'm receiving, and I'm, I'm a consumer, and I'm getting this, and I'm getting this, and I'm trying to get this, and I'm trying to get this, and yet I'm so bored with my life. I find life so purposeless. I find life so meaningless. I, I I'm just have this metaphysical boredom with, with, with my life, with, with just life in general. And I think the solution to that ultimately is not if you burn out, hey, take it easy and, and do less. And it's not if you're bored, do more. It's more be in loving relationships where you are putting the well-being of others in front of your own and where they are putting your well-being in front of their own. That the solution to this is love, that that what we really need, what we're really made for, and many of you will know that the Greek word that Paul uses here and that the early Christians often use is agape, not eros, not even philia, friendship, but this idea of love that is like God's. And and so I just want to, and and I'll end with this in just a moment, and I will say this in my exhortation to to the elder and the deacons that are coming up, but life can be really, really challenging. It can be really complicated. It can be very confusing and overwhelming. But what Paul is reminding us is that if there is not love at the center of our existence, we are missing the point on everything else. We are wasting our time on everything else. This is the heart of it. And so in terms of the priority of love, let me point out two other things. One from the passage and then one more just from the the logic of the Christian faith overall. At the end of the chapter, let's jump to the end of chapter 13, Paul talks about how love will never end. That, that love will always be here, but things like prophecy and spiritual gifts, even knowledge, 
One of the things I'll, I'll say this real quick, because because I often think this as a pastor and as a teacher, I love reading books. A lot of you know that I'm a huge nerd. I love learning and I love teaching other people. I will not be doing this in the new heavens and a new earth anymore. You will not need this from me anymore. I will also not be a pastor in the new heavens and a new earth anymore. For many years, I've been working with med students here in New York. And often in the first meeting of the year, when I meet with med students, I say, here's one of the many connections between being a pastor and a med student, a doctor. The doctors are focused on healing the things that go wrong physically in our lives. And pastors are there to heal the things that go wrong spiritually. And we're all going to be out of a job after the resurrection from the dead. And if that's the center of our identity, fixing things that are broken, or learning things that we don't know yet, or providing for other people with our gifts that they can't receive directly from God, if that is at the center of your identity, you are going to have an identity crisis in the future. Because that's not what you were primarily created for. That's not primarily what is there. And even not just the spiritual gifts, but when Paul says these great three Christian virtues, faith and hope and love, they show up at the end. In a minute, I'll get there. They actually show up in the middle too, that love believes all things, love hopes all things. That that, That there's a priority that love has even over faith. And even over hope. Here, I think, is the deepest logic there. You do need to have faith. You need to trust in God. You need to be able to see his goodness, even when everything around seems to deny it, to be loving right now. You do. You need hope. You need to believe that God is going to redeem the world in the future in order to love people well right now. But nonetheless, hope and faith are going away in the future. They are only temporary parts of the story. Hope and faith only arise because of sin. Because of sin, God is hidden from us, and we cannot see him. And the opposite of faith is not reason. The opposite of faith is sight. And one day we will see God face to face, and you will no longer have faith ever again. One day what God has promised will arise, will arrive, and you will never have to hope for something in the future that is not yet to come. And so even faith and even hope have a time clock on them that they're going to run out. They're going to expire. The reason, the deepest reason I think that Paul says the greatest of these is love is that only love of all these things, spiritual gifts, abilities, vocations, callings, even the way we relate to God and relate to the future right now are in some sense an adjustment because of sin, an adjustment because of the brokenness of the world. But love will actually endure into the future. And here is the deepest reason. And if at the end of the day, this is not the point today, I would love to talk about this, especially if you're not a Christian or if you're wrestling with the claims of the Christian faith. If I had to say in in just one thing, why am I a Christian? Why do I follow Jesus? There's a lot of reasons, and and anybody's identity with with any kind of conviction overall is going to be complicated. But if I had to say what I find most compelling about Christianity— about Jesus, I would say this. Christianity claims that before anything existed physically, before the world was created, that God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a relationship of love. And so anything else, if you ask me, why is my last name Nowak? I could say, well, because this stuff in the past. My, my dad had that name and his ancestors had that name. If you ask me, why am I an introvert or not this? Why am I a pastor rather than some other vocation? If you ask, why are the dynamics economically and politically the way they are in America in the 21st century? If you ask, why did Jesus come into the world? Why did he die on the cross? There's always a comma because that you can point to and get under it. 
And here's where you run into something. You read in the Gospel of John, which is where we most get this sense of of the doctrine of the Trinity, of who God really is as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Jesus makes these statements over and over again in the Gospel of John. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And there is no because behind that. There is no comma. Before that, something else is going on, and that arose temporally at a certain point. There's no something else caused that. That just is. I think the deepest um, contradiction between Christianity and the way we tend to look at the world as modern people is all things being equal, as much as we still resonate with the centrality of love today, we, we tend to think that however, whether you believe in God, whether you're agnostic, whether you're an atheist, that at some point physical matter began to exist and then consciousness arose. And then emotions and neurons started firing in the brain, and love arises after and because of, in some sense, physical matter. And in the claim of the Christian story, love precedes creation. Love gives rise to creation. Love is the deepest DNA of the cosmos. There is no beginning to love, and love is what has given rise to why we are here, to why the world exists, to why there is something rather than nothing. And so the priority of love at this part of the story is not a new thing. It's because there is a priority to love in reality, and there always has been. The deepest, most true statement you can make about reality is that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. That is the explanation of everything else. That is a profound statement. And it's not just that that's the beginning, but whereas in the future there will be no suffering and there will be no sin, there will be no spiritual gifts in the future that the rest of the body needs from us. There will be no pastors. There will be no doctors. That's not to say that I think we're going to be sitting around doing nothing. I think that we will have things to do. I think if you're an artist, you still have stuff to do in the future. I think that, that if you're a good neighbor, you still have stuff. We will be active. I don't mean that. But so much of what we do in this world at this point in the story is fixing things that are broken or trying to bring about a state of affairs that doesn't exist yet. And none of that will be needed anymore in the future. But Jonathan Edwards, an old Puritan pastor, about 50 years before the Revolutionary War, he preached a sermon of uh, a series of sermons on 1 Corinthians 13 called Charity and His Fruits. And the last sermon, which summed it up, said, was just called this, Heaven is a world of love. One day, the only real dynamic in the world will be love. Love for, from God for us, love from us towards God, love for us towards each other. One day, all the other scaffolding will be gone. That's not to say that it will be simplistic or we'll be sitting on heart clouds passively playing harps or stuff like that. But it is to say that love will be the essence of everything you do all the time in the future. And so if you are not majoring in this right now, you are in deep variance and, and out of alignment with what the beginning of the story is, with where the story is going in the future. And so these are just different ways of trying to just flesh out what Paul is saying. Guys, if we do everything else in our lives, everything else our faith calls us to, but we have not love, we are completely out of tune with the story. We are completely missing it. This is central to who God is, to what the world exists for, to who we are. And so that's the priority of love. The shape of love, this is, this is one I would love to do more at length some other time. 
But, uh, but, but here, I think, is where the Christian story brings a different note that, that's most challenging to our culture today. Um, the idea that love looks like specific things, um, it's clear that our culture resonates with the priority of love, but the shape of love, our culture, I think, has instincts to go in very different directions. And so I don't want to be distracting here. I just, I, I've just found this to be such an insightful summary of something in our culture. A lot of you know this, probably all of you do. A couple of years ago, I don't know if it was seven years ago or 10 years ago, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who I love and who is so gifted, got up in an award show and said, love is love, is love, is love, is love. And, and even though technically that's a tautology, and even though technically it's a non sequitur, it has resonated with our culture. And I just want you to notice that even just on the surface, beyond the specifics, that Paul doesn't say love is love, is love, is love. He says love is patient and love is filled with goodness. Love is not this and love is not this and love is not this, but love is this and it is this, that there are either or choices before us. The shape of love is given to us from the outside. It arises from the shape of the story we're in, from the character of God. And I want you to notice that, and it's one of the ways you can see that 1 Corinthians 13 is really a bit of a rebuke, is that the majority of the qualifications or the descriptions of love are in the negative, not in the positive. Love is not this. Love is not this. Love is not this. Love is not this. And if we had more time, I would love to do this another time. Almost every negative that Paul makes in this chapter is connected to something that is going on in the church in Corinth. And so when he says love is not this, he's almost always referring to something they're doing that he criticizes earlier in the letter. And so in many ways, the chapter is saying you guys perceive yourselves to be loving, but actually, even though you're excited about the spirit and even though you're really zealous about your ideological differences and even though you're doing this and you're doing this in whatever direction you're doing it, that the one thing you're missing constantly is what love actually looks like. It's not unique to our culture, I think, but almost by definition. No ideology, no group of people, and no individual left to ourselves ever perceives themselves to be radically falling short of love. We almost always identify love with what we're currently doing, and, and that's something that Paul challenges us on right now. It's a Karl Barth. It's in the, the longer printed bulletin, and I sent it out, but I'll just read this. Karl Barth asks, I think, the question that we need as Christians in our culture. He says, if, as I just argued and as I think Paul and all of the scriptures you know, teach so plainly, if it is that love is the essence in totality of the good that is demanded of us, here's the question, how can I know if I am loving? How can I know if I am loving? It's one thing to say love is all you need. It's another thing to say, is this love or is that love? And, and it's interesting that, that when Lin-Manuel Miranda, who again I love, says this, what he clearly means is more the way our culture uses love. What he means is something more like desire is desire is desire is desire. Or what you like is what you like is what you like is what you like, which is not nearly as profound an insight. And really just ends up being what Woody Allen said a generation before when he justified publicly his entering into a sexual relationship with basically his stepdaughter. He's like, guys, the heart wants what the heart wants. 
Doesn't sound quite as virtuous when you put it that way, but that's really the idea, is that ultimately just affirming whatever the desires a person has is the essence of love is something very, very different than what we're called to here. Romans 12 verse 9 starts a long description of love by saying, do not be hypocritical in your love, which means that there are counterfeits here, which means that there are people who perceive themselves to be loving, but it's not actually love. That there's a form of love that's not actually authentic love. That there are claims to love which don't actually pass muster. And and here is, it's very, very simple, but I think it's so profound. And it also comes from Karl Barth. And and I was an English major, as many of you know. And and we even did a series last year in the spring on the grammar of faith. Here is, I'll I'll just use a couple of examples. And, And want to point out a tendency I think we have in our culture that is almost completely upside down, that that we need to resist as Christians. When you make a statement like this, God is good, or you make a statement like Jesus is sinless, or you make a statement like the Holy Spirit empowers us, or you make a statement like scripture is inspired, here's what you can't do. You can't first say this is what inspiration means. This is what goodness means. We already know that. You can't say this is what sinlessness means. For instance, you might have grown up in a culture where, in, in, in some cultures this is true, where ever losing your temper and cri- criticizing somebody is seen as sinful, is seen as unloving. And so when you get to those places in the Gospels where Jesus does that, if you've already imported a definition of sin, of goodness, of love, of whatever, you're going to have to say, and Jesus comes up short of it there. Or you're going to have to rewrite it so that you actually think, no, Jesus isn't doing what he actually seems to be doing there. And so the idea is that we don't know the definition of goodness by first just looking around or looking inward and coming up with it. We pay attention to how God acts in the world. We pay attention to his character. We pay attention to what he does and what he doesn't do. And as we pay attention to the story, we learn what goodness means. As we read scripture, you could, as a modern 21st century person, say, here's what truth means. It means mathematics. It means science. It means logic. It means philosophy. And then say, man, the Bible really falls short of that. But the claim is not that the Bible lives up to the ideas we already have of truthfulness and inspiration. The idea is that as we read scripture, we learn what truth is. We learn what God has inspired. And so the idea, and here's the the simplest way to see it. In 1 John, the great letter of love, John reminds us of this. By this, we know what love is, that Christ gave himself for us. And died. He doesn't say, everybody already knows what love is, and now notice how Jesus lives up to that. He says, by this we know love. We pay attention to the story of Jesus. We see how God acts in history, and we learn what love looks like from that. And so a very basic, I think, point that flows out of what Paul is saying here, and ultimately everything the scripture says, is that we need to learn to love We need to learn what love is. We don't need to first say, whatever I desire, whatever I like, whatever I prefer, whatever I'm drawn to, and then getting that is the way you love me and the way I love myself and love the world, is we need to learn what love is. It's interesting, at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, when Dan read it, maybe you noticed it, is Paul uses this metaphor of being a child versus being an adult. When I was a child, I I was occupied with childish stuff. 
When I grew up, when I became an adult, I put these childish things away. Here is a way I would restate that. Paul is reminding us is that love is a grown-up thing. Love is not kids' games. Love is not starting with, kind of like kids do, what they want and then going out from the world. I'm just going to use this visual metaphor. Some of you might find this helpful. Some of you might be super abstract. But the basic uh, difference between something that is uh, centripetal and something that is uh, how do I pronounce the other one? Um, centrifugal is just the direction. Does it go out from the center of the circle outwards, or does it come from outwards into the circle? And our culture teaches us to identify love as things coming to us that we already want. And it kind of revolves around our subjectivity. Love, according to scripture, is something that goes out from us to what God has created us for, to what our neighbors actually need from us. And so just for a couple of minutes, and then we'll end, I just want to work through some of the descriptions so that this isn't abstract. The first two descriptions of love in this middle paragraph, verse four, is love is patient. That is, I'm going to pick on, on, on the ESV translation a couple of times here. Patience is a fine translation there, but it plays down what's going on. If you ever heard the King James Version or old versions, this is where we get in English the word long-suffering, which is much more ferocious and active than patient is. The idea is literally what these two words in Greek mean together. The idea is that love is something that in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of that which is frustrating, in the midst of that which you don't want it to be, is it takes a long time for love to get provoked into anger. So somebody could be constantly kind of going off on other people, constantly reacting to other people in a negative way, and perceive themselves to be loving. But Paul says, love is long-suffering. That um, qualifies claims to love. That needs to shape claims to love. And the next one, kind, also a bit watered down. And, And these are the two words, passively, actively, negatively, positively, that are used to describe God more than any other throughout the Bible. That God is long-suffering with his people and with the world, and it takes him a long time to show anger. He is so patient before he shows judgment, and you are not loving if you are out of step with that, with other people. And he is someone who is abounding in grace that we do not deserve. He is oriented towards us totally in, in goodness, totally for our well-being, And no one is loving who is out of tune with that. No one is loving who doesn't live up to that. And so the first thing Paul says is love looks like the imitation of God. Love looks like keeping in step horizontally with your life, with what God has shown you of how he relates to the world, how he relates to you. Just to put it in a very simple way, and I don't think this should be a big eye-opening one, but it's really challenging, is the test of your love for other people is if you can say with a straight face, this is how God relates to me. In Matthew 18, when Jesus tells this parable of a guy who has been forgiven an infinite debt, and then he goes home and he throws a temper tantrum because his servant owes him 10 bucks. The outrageousness of that parable is that there's a claim that you're in the right horizontally and you are doing something completely different from what you have received from God. Love for one another takes the shape of God's love for us. Now Paul goes into a lot of the negatives. Love is not envious. 
It does not boast. By the way, envy there is another one that I think is a bit of a bad translation. This is where we actually just get the word zeal from in English. The Greek word is zealous. And the idea is not that love doesn't envy what others have, although that might be true. It's just not what Paul says. The idea is that human zeal, being really passionate about something, is something that often causes people to not be paying attention to what other people need. Have you ever, and I promise you, you have, and if you're not aware that you have, it's because you're the one that's been doing this, but we've all seen it and we've probably all done it. Have you ever been in a room where somebody comes in and they've got an agenda and it might even be true, might even be right what they care about and they care about it really deeply and all of the energy just goes out of the room and it goes towards them and everything becomes about this person and this person is not aware of what other people need. This person is not aware of what's going on there. Paul is saying zeal is not the same as love. The things you care about really deeply are not the way you love the world. Um, I heard somebody say this years ago, and I find this helpful, so I'll just share here. In, in Ephesians 4, when Paul says one of the ways we grow up into adults, into full maturity as the church, is that we speak the truth in love. In many of us in an ideological age, whether in conservative or liberal ways, we often say, I love people by speaking the truth. But that's not what Paul says. Speaking the truth is not in and of itself a guarantee that you are loving. So when you walk into a room, pay attention to what you're zealous about. Pay attention to what you really are passionate about and notice how left to yourself it will often cause you to fail to pay attention to what's going on in other people. It will often cause you to have them coming towards you apart from their volunteering that and, and kind of everything circles around you. And so as Paul says, there's something about love that zeal tends to take us in a different direction. He says it's not boastful, it's not arrogant. These are words that show up over and over that love is not self-centered. Love is not primarily trying to show off. Love is not trying to get other people's attention and get affirmation from them so that you feel good about yourself. That's not primarily what love is. Love is not rude. That's an honor-shame word. Love doesn't walk into a situation where there's a culture there. For instance, something that I think probably almost all of us learned in our families growing up is that when you go over to somebody else's house, their family sets the rules of engagement. You don't just say, well, this is what I do, and so forget these people. That love takes into account how other people experience what you say. How other people expect what is supposed to happen here. It's not to say that's the only thing. It's one of many, many descriptions. But love seeks to honor people and not shame them. Love seeks to um, encourage people and not be rude to them, that, that love in good manners, civility, is connected, that the Corinthians, in their zeal, in their greed, in their focus on their own zealous passions, they are constantly rubbing other people the wrong way within the church. And Paul says, that's not what love looks like. He goes on and he says, love is not irritable or resentful. Sorry, I missed one. It does not insist on its own way. Maybe just the most basic challenge of love. That love is not primarily about what you want or, or, or what is important to you in this moment. That love is primarily focused on the well-being of other people. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't primarily captured by, man, I really desire this and how can I get this today? That's not the orientation of love. A couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we talked about desire. And one of the things I said is that a, a, a different way to think about humility, which is very connected to love, is someone who is humble is someone who decenters their desire and centers the needs of other people. 
And yet we have a definition of love in our culture where you always being animated by what you want is compatible with love. And Paul says love doesn't seek its own. He also says it's not irritable. It's not resentful. This is a challenging one for me. My wife is somebody who wakes up every day by God's grace and is just ready to go. And she is rejoicing in God. I am a very cranky guy. I'm angsty, I'm dark, tend to feel it. And the idea here is that love is, and I want to be careful here because everything can be abused, but love here is not easily triggered. Love is not constantly reacting to what bothers you about other people. Love is not walking in the rooms primarily sensing what's broken and then criticizing and complaining. Love is something that walks in, and to put it this way, love has to have thick skin. Love has to be resilient. Love has to be able to be present in moments that are far from adequate and still be able to pursue the well-being of other people even while things are still broken. Love is not constantly reacting. It is not constantly cranky in response to what is broken in other people's lives and in the situation. It's primarily oriented towards what would be helpful to other people. Iris Murdoch put it in in her famous book, The Sovereignty of Good, love is the extremely difficult realization that something other than yourself is real and more important. That's a really challenging claim. It's a really challenging claim. There's so many other descriptions here. For the sake of time, I'm going to move on. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. If you love those who think the same way as you, who you're already buddies with, and that you enjoy, what are you doing that every sinful human being isn't already doing? The test of love are the difficult circumstances. The test of love are the really annoying people. The test of love is enemies. The test of love is what you do in the ruins, not in paradise. Great book by Walker Percy, Love in the Ruins. If the beginning of the story is the father loves the son and the son loves the father, and the end of the story is heaven is a world of love, all love at this part of the story is love in the ruins. And we need to be realistic about that. And so how you love in the ruins is the mark of love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is in the, in the bulletin too, I won't even read it here, but he talks about if we are primarily focused on critique, on resent towards other people, we will always fall short that God has not related to us like this. God is not primarily irritable towards us. God is not primarily resentful. God is patient. God is filled with kindness and goodness. God is not primarily concerned about his own interests, but he's concerned about our interests in the way he relates to us, and that's what love looks like. So I'm going to do this in two minutes, but even though Paul doesn't say it explicitly, I think it's just implied by everything he says here and everything in the New Testament, which is therefore to really be a person of love has a cost. That it is not an accident that the central claim of Christianity is that the person we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and by the way, I was thinking this week that what a great summary as a title of the story that we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Love in the Ruins. That's a great description of what's going on in this story. That the story, the, the person in human history who most shows us what God is like as the eternal son of the father, the person in history who is most reflecting God's image as a human being in loving God and loving his neighbor is a person who suffers more than anyone else, is a person who has scars. And so here's what I want to say, and I don't mean to be dark here, I just mean to be realistic and to call it something beautiful. 
The path of love is a path that you will have scars from. The path of love is something that will take you into suffering and not towards the fulfillment of your desires in spite of what happens to other people. The path of love, I remember, um, I've mentioned this before, I wrote my senior thesis in college a long, long time ago on this book, Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Um, the, the Gandalf or the Dumbledore in that book is a guy named Father Zosima. And he says to the young, idealistic Christian Alyosha, love in real life is a harsh and fearful thing compared with love and dreams. Let's, let's recalibrate that to what Paul says here. Love when it's kids' games, when, it, when it's what a kid thinks love looks like, that's one thing, but love, grown-up love, is a very different, different thing. And in Dostoevsky, through Father Zosima says, love in our dreams thirsts for immediate action. I'm gonna do this, and it's gonna be paradise five minutes later, and everything's gonna be great. And, and not only that, but it will be quickly and easily performed. I'm gonna be past this really quick and then we're gonna get back to all the stuff I want and everyone will be watching and applauding as I do it. That's love in dreams. Love in the ruins is something that bids us to follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis, and many of you have read this article, C.S. Lewis says, if your great goal in life is to minimize pain, if your great goal in life is to avoid suffering, if your great goal in life is to get what you want and to not have to endure the loss of it, I have a very, very simple strategy for you. Never love anything. Don't love a person. Don't love God. Don't even love an animal. And you will never suffer. You will also cease to be a human being. And so there's a cost in both directions. There's a cost in both directions. And so I do want to encourage us that on the other side of this, to put it this way, that the, the claim of Christianity is that if you follow the path of love, you will constantly experience death. But Christianity also claims that if you do not love, you are the living dead and you are already dead. And so to lose our lives is to actually find them, to give up our lives for the sake of the gospel and the sake of Jesus. And I will just say this, whether it is in our families, I experience this all the time from Helen, and I hope Helen to some degree experiences it with me. I experience it in close relationship with other Christians. Loving the people in my life has been the costliest thing I have ever experienced. It has also been something that I would not trade for anything. It is more beautiful it is more satisfying. And when I look at people around me, like just my peers my own age, who have regularly chosen what they desire over sacrificial love for other people, I pity them. I do not envy them. I do not say, man, they've, they've just skipped all this stuff that I had to do, and not that I've done it perfectly. But, but I do want to say, because this is a passage that is focused primarily on, on critique and rebuke, I don't want to shirk that and turn this into, oh, isn't love just so beautiful, and we just all kind of feel like sentimental and, and, and syrupy at the end. But nonetheless, I do want you to hear that Paul thinks this is the more excellent way. That Paul thinks there is no other way that surpasses this. That Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, went down this path of costly love. And so I also want to say with confidence, I have no worries about your well-being if you choose to go down this path. I am not worried like, man, this is right and this is, you know, what we're supposed to do. Man, I'm really calling you guys to something sad. I am calling you to something that is the opposite of sadness. I'm calling you to something that is the opposite of death. 
I'm calling you to something that is the opposite of not being human. I have so much optimism that in the short run, there will be innumerable moments when we are irritable and we are resentful and we don't want to be long suffering for another five minutes and we don't want to do this. We don't want to do that. And in the short run, we will feel that cost and have to fight that temptation all the time. But in the long run, this is the best way to be human. This is the best way to be human. And the claim is that because we live in the ruins, this is the only love that there actually is at this part of the story. But it's a love that takes its origin from before the ruins arose that will exist on the other side of it. And so I highly commend love to you. And, and, and because we should always ultimately center on and end with the gospel, I'll say this. Because if you're anything like me, there's a reason I was like, maybe we should do confession of sin after the sermon this week. Because if anybody is feeling better about what you see in the mirror right now than you did 40 minutes ago, I would say, were you, were you listening to anything that I said? We fall so far short of this. I would just say this, memorize this passage, consider that. And here's what I want you to also reflect. This is what you have experienced from your creator every single moment that you have ever existed. This is how God has related to you and always will relate to you and is relating to you right now. If you are not able to look at this and say, this is beautiful, this is what I experienced from God, then I would say you do not know yet what it means to be loved by God. Your perception of God's love for you is a kid's game, but what God's love for you has actually looked like is he has prioritized you is this has been the shape of his love. He has put your interests in front of his own. He has been patient, not quick to anger. He has been filled with goodness towards you. He has not been irritable and resentful. He has not licensed your unrighteousness, but he has rejoiced when you move towards the truth. He's not primarily focused on your feelings right now. And he has scars because of his love for us. And so read this passage and remember how you are loved by God. And then read this passage and say, this is what it means to do the adulting thing for the rest of my life. This is what it means to grow up. This is what it means to be a mature human being. This is what it means to reflect the image of God. And so let's end with how Dan started us off. And then next week in 1 Corinthians 14, we'll come back to this. I will show you a still more excellent way. Have that ringing in our ears. And next week, when we come back to the spiritual gifts, neighborhood church, pursue love. There are a lot of other things out there to pursue in life. Make your priority the pursuit of love. Love for God, love for other people. And why do we gather together? We gather together to experience this God's love for us that looks like this specifically. And we gather together to love one another as a reflection of that. So let's pray. Now we're going to install some new officers who are called to love.